We are jumping into uh, the book of Job this morning at chapter 4. Uh, thus far, Job is the only one that is spoken. Remember that he and his three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, have sat in silence for seven days uh, out under the elements. And then Job has been the one who has broken the silence. Uh, and basically what he has said to his friends is this, is he wishes he really had never been born because of the ordeal that he's undergoing now, that he sees it as perhaps the only way that he could have uh, not uh, suffered as he is suffering now. He also proposed the idea that it would have been better if he had, had not been born, if he had been stillborn or he had died very early on in life all for the reason that he would not be suffering as he is suffering now. And what we're going to find today is Eliphaz, one of the three friends, responds to what Job has said. And when you read what he says, you're going to say, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of wisdom in, in his words and this, that, and the other. Uh, but what I'm going to challenge us with this morning is this, is even though basically that these three friends are going to respond to, to Job's comments, not only here, but two more times uh, after this. And then someone else, Elihu, on top of that, is going to feel compelled to respond to the things that Job says. Uh, that what they say may make a lot of sense according to traditional wisdom. Uh, and there, I want to challenge us with the idea that there is, in fact, some truth in what they say. But the problem is this, is they don't, they don't say all of the truth. <laughs> you know, what they present is a half-truth. And, and, and I would imagine that most of the things that they say that we would agree with in, in, in at least certain contexts uh, and that sort of thing. Now, why Eliphaz is the one who speaks first, we're not sure. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about it, that perhaps he was the oldest one, you know, because people tend to look at older people as being the more wise ones, and maybe Zophar and Bildad just were waiting for Eliphaz to say something because he was the oldest one. He may have more influence over the other two, or, or, or this, that, or the other, but truth comes uh, to light, and that is just simply we don't know. We don't know why Eliphaz is the first one to speak. We only know that he, in fact, is. One of the things that's going to become very clear is that all three of them are, go are going to present, you know, in different ways and different manners, basically the same philosophy, uh, which basically is based upon the Bible based upon God's word to some degree. Uh, but the problem with it is it only says half-truth. It doesn't address every aspect of the, the matters before them. It focuses on particular things and ignores other things. Ultimately, what we're going to gather from the three of them is this, is they believe that Job and what he has said, he has grossly wronged God. In essence, he's blasphemed God. And they feel compelled to defend God 
to Job. They believe that Job's words cannot go unchallenged. They, they, they're in a position, and you've all been in a position like this in your lifetime, when you just feel like you've got to say something. Because of what Job has said. So part of their intention is to correct him in his, what they believe to be his wrong understanding of things. I would say to you this, I would imagine that Job's own viewpoint and opinion about particular things has changed. I would imagine before all these things took place in the life of Job that he probably would have said mostly the same kinds of things that these other three fellows do. But reality is Job's perspective has changed because he's the one who has endured all of the, these things that have fallen upon him. He understands things now through his suffering that were not known to him beforehand. We're not going to go into great detail when it comes to everything that these three men say. We're going to, uh, you know, if, if we do that, if we go chapter by chapter through this book, it's going to take us a very long time to get through the book of Job. And, and even though I want to spend a good bit of time here, because I think it's important for us as believers to consider this very important book from the Old Testament, we're not going to do it word by word, as we've said. So we're going to start jumping over chapters and things like that eventually. We're not to the point yet we're going to do that. Uh, because one of the things you're going to find is this, is a message that continues to come forth from these three friends is the same message over and over again. They may be saying things in a little, a little different manner and this, that, and the other, but overall their message is the same. Eliphaz believes that in some way Job has actually slandered God in what he said and that God must be defended even before his friend Job. So we'll read chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet can you keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld uh, him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they, per they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey. The cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received a whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me in trembling, which made all of my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. 
Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth, between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces, they perish forever without anyone regarding it. It is their tent, uh, or tent cord, plucked up within them. Do they not die in uh, that without wisdom? Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slanders the simple. I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I curse the dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one who delivers them. The hungry eats uh, his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns. And the thirst or thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. As for me, I would seek God, and to him, or, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick, quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts their mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beast of the earth. You shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as a grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in a ripe old age like a sheath uh, gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. Now, I would imagine as we're reading through there, you're thinking this is some pretty good advice that this Eliphaz guy is giving to Job. One of the things that becomes very clear is this. It's not only true for Eliphaz, but it's true for the other two as well, and that is they believe in retribution theology. This is one of the basic fundamental underlyings or things that underlie their whole argument you're going to see repeated basically over and over again and that is the idea that only bad bad things only happen to people who have done bad 
Basically, what they're saying to him, what Eliphaz is saying to Job is this, is you need to live a righteous life, and if you do that, then your life is going to be good. In essence, what he's telling Job is you're suffering. What you're suffering right now is a direct product of, of your evilness, your own wickedness. God is repaying you for what you've done. This is what, again, is called retribution theology. Again, we're not going to consider, you know, every word here before us just in these couple of chapters because it would take us a long time to do that. But this is basically the thrust of his argument. You have brought this suffering upon yourself because whether you understand it or believe it or not, you have committed wrong. And we understand that very often hurt comes as a result of wrongdoing, right? We've all suffered discipline in our life in one way or another. The problem with it is this, is there are situations where people suffer wrongly, where people suffer things that they don't deserve. And we know this is all true, and all you have to do is look at the cross of Jesus Christ and come to that conclusion. Did Jesus deserve what he suffered on the cross? The answer is no. But he suffered nonetheless. We are remembering the martyrs this morning. Brothers and sisters down through the ages who have suffered unbelievably torture, horrible deaths by the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands through history have suffered not because they're bad, not because of wrong they've done, but because they have stood for Christ. I mean, any Christian should be able to shoot this retribution theology down in a minute. It may sound like worldly wisdom, and it is in a sense worldly wisdom, and it paints part of the picture because very often people do suffer for wrong they've done. But the problem is there are occasions when people suffer and sometimes suffer very greatly when they haven't done anything wrong. The gospel. I would imagine that Job has suffered probably more, possibly more than any human being other than Jesus Christ has ever suffered. This hasn't been for a short time now. If, if you look ahead in the book, there's reason to believe that Job has been suffering in this intense condition for months. 
Doesn't have the benefit of pain relievers, painkillers like we have today. Not of the, not of the advantage of, of modern medicine. He's left there to endure the intensity of all of this with no relief at all. One of the most amazing things is this, is Job at this point, and he never will get beyond this point. He will never curse God for what he's enduring. Even though others will encourage him to do that. As I said before, I would imagine that Job's perspective on things has been changed probably maybe a great deal by his own circumstances. It's so easy to sit on the outside of a house and cast stones at someone else that's inside the house. But I haven't a clue, haven't any idea what it really is like to be that person. To endure what that person has endured or, or is enduring. So easy for, for fallen sinners like us to, to pass judgments on other people when we really don't even understand the circumstances under which things are happening to them. The world out there very often looks upon us as a bunch of judgmental people. People who look down our nose at other folks. As an adult unbeliever, that is exactly how I would have pictured the church to other people. There's a sense in which Job's friends are going to be saying things to him. They don't actually come out and say this, but these things are implied in what they're saying. Because I would imagine, like I said before, that Job's perspective has changed. That, 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 that before this happened to Job, more than likely the advice and counsel he gave to other people might have been exactly the advice and counsel he gets from his three friends. In essence, his friends are saying to him things like, you're allowing your current situation to cloud your judgment and understanding. In fact, you're not practicing what you yourself, what you yourself, we have heard you preach. You've given this advice, and this same advice and counsel that we're giving you, we've, you've given it to other people. You're allowing your circumstances to, to blind you. But again, the basic idea that underlies all of the argumentation you're going to get through from these guys is that bad things only happen to bad people. But again, it's very easy to strike down 
that thinking. Just by considering the gospel. You understand that there's a sense in which Job is a pre-Christ. It's possible that you couldn't find another person in all of the Old Testament that comes closer to being like Jesus than Job. In just about every way that you can possibly imagine. Very often people do suffer for bad that they have done. But there are times when people suffer when they haven't done anything bad. As a matter of fact, they're suffering simply because they've done what is good and what is right. Sometimes it's very easy for Christians to look upon other people and think, you know what, look what they're going through. And I know why, it's because they're... They're not really that good. Let me tell you, there's a sense in which we can say this, that every bit of suffering that ever falls upon a person, they deserve it. And if they didn't deserve it, then they would not receive it. Now, we may not understand all the the different aspects and facets of that deserving. God sees it. God knows it. Do you understand that it would be morally wrong ethically wrong for God to allow suffering of of any person that did not deserve that suffering in some way? He could not, he will not allow such a thing as that to happen, ever. And we understand this, that all suffering by people has to do with sin. And sometimes it may be their sin. Sometimes it's not their sin at all. It's the sin of other people being poured out upon them. And we know that as long as sin is in this world, there's going to be suffering in this world. And that will be here until the day Christ comes back. And suffering at that point will be abolished from this world. Completely, absolutely, eternally. Now, Jesus said to the thief on the cross that the day you will be with me in paradise. You know, when we hear that, we think, well, you know, this plush garden with all these really beautiful plants and butterflies everywhere and and all colored birds and, you know, this, that, and the other and, 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 and whatever. But do you understand biblically what paradise is? Paradise is a place where there is no longer any sin or sin's influence at all. And because that is true, there is no suffering. You wonder sometimes what enables the, the, the martyrs, these people who today, as we're speaking, are being persecuted severely for their faith. We will have brothers and sisters in Christ who will give their life today for no other reason than the fact that they are a Christian. 
The world would have, uh, have the audacity to throw the argument to them uh, at this. Look how ridiculous this of your belief is. If God really cared about you, if God loved you, if this Christ really existed, would he let you endure such a thing as this? That makes human sense. That, in essence, is the same argument we're going to hear over and over again from these three friends of Job. Sadly, you probably would not have to look very far to find people in the church and sometimes leaders in the church who would basically give exactly the same advice and counsel to people that are suffering as these friends give to Job. I think one of the saddest things in the church today, and remember we're remembering Reformation Sunday was last week or today, whenever we're doing it, it's, you know, it's October the 31st is Reformation Day. But remember, sola gratia. Grace. Grace alone. Sadly, there are people who will sit in church every Sunday for their whole lifetime who never hear anything about grace. Nothing. What I would say to you is this, is grace holds a very central position In Christian theology, that if you take grace out of the picture, and remember what grace is, this is undeserved favor that is given, shown to people who don't deserve it. Favor given to people who have not earned it. Favor to people who have not worked to get it. It's freely given. Favor. It is the means, in a sense, by which people come to faith. If God was not gracious, if he did not give grace, not one single person would be saved. Nobody. For grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. In other words, you can't Cause it to well up within you, yourself. It's not within your power to give you grace and therefore faith. God must give it to you. God must grant it to you. For what reason? So you don't have one bit of ground to boast about anything. There's no one here that has any ground for believing that they are saved because they're better than other people. Or they deserved it when so-and-so didn't deserve it. 
that person does not exist. Every person that has ever been saved is saved by God's grace and God's grace only. And apart from that grace, Jesus would have come and lived and died and not saved one single person. But sadly, there are people who will listen to sermon after sermon after sermon, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and they will never ever hear anybody talking about grace. Because that is true. There are lots of church people who would try to build an argument against Job that's exactly like the argument these three, three friends try to bring against their friend. They see no place for grace. They do not understand grace at all. Not a bit. We were studying through the book of Romans. We were saying this very often because we talk about grace and, 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 and those sorts of doctrines that are very clearly presented to us in the Bible. People conclude very often that people that have what we call a reformed perspective on salvation and everything else. That it causes you to be arrogant and prideful and puffed up and think you're better than other people. But let me tell you, if you've ever known anybody that you've got seen that in or that's true in yourself, then you just flat don't understand grace to begin with. Because grace is the one and only thing that has the ability of humbling and humiliating the fallen human heart. The only way we can understand the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is to understand that he took what I deserved. He took upon himself out of his love for me for whatever reason he happens to love me. And he endured that for me. Even though I did not in any way, shape, or form deserve it. Now, when you think about that, it should not make you prideful and puffed up. It should humiliate the mess out of you. It should humble you. Not make you prideful and arrogant. See, this is one of the problems with retribution's theologies. There's no place for something like grace. But sadly, what you're going to find is there are a lot of people in churches today that believe basically, essentially, in retribution theology. That bad things only happen to bad people. It's easy to jump to the conclusion because my life is pretty good. There's a lot of little bad stuff that happened to me. That means I'm a good person compared to other folks. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke.
See, we have a sinful nature in us that basically serves the same purpose as these three, three friends do for Job. We may not have three friends sitting around us and challenge us with this, that, and the other all the time, but we have a sinful nature in us that's doing it constantly. The fact of the matter is that Christians are often called to suffer unjustly. Not because they've done anything wrong, but very often because they simply have done what is right. You ever heard the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? Ever hear that? In other words, wherever the church pops up, first of all comes people dying. May not always be the case, but very often, in fact, it is. That very often the witness of people who are martyred because of their faith is one of the key reasons why people are challenged to look at it and they're going, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody endure that? The only thing they had to do was give up Christ, just deny Christ, and they could have lived, but they refused to do that. They, they chose to die instead. Maybe they know something I don't know. Maybe more importantly, they know someone who I, someone who I don't know. The Lord loves his children, and let me tell you, he doesn't waste a drop of their blood. It's hard for us where we are today to even relate to what life is like for a lot of church people in the rest of the world. We just don't have a clue. Very often they are shunned by family and friends, made to be outcasts. Sometimes their children are taken away from them, or their spouse leaves them. Husbands deserted by wives, wives deserted by husbands. Parents denying children, children denying parents. Don't you think that hurts? But Christ is important enough to them to endure it. See, my friends... The gospel does a lot of things, but one of those is this, is, he, is it blasts holes all in retribution theology. The idea that people always get what they have coming to them. As Christians, we don't get what we have coming to us because Christ got what we have coming to us. 
And that's the only reason. It's the only thing that makes us different than anybody else. It's amazing some of this reveals the great arrogance of Eliphaz. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, I would seek God. To God I would commit my cause. All I want to say to him, I want to scream at this guy. How stupid, how naive can you possibly be? Do you really believe that this man of God has sat here now for months and not one time appealed to God? I would imagine that's what he's been doing unceasingly over this time. His heart has been toward God. He's called to God. He's cried out to God over and over and over again. And let me tell you, and you know that. You know, if we know anything about Job's heart, we know that is true. He has turned to God over and over and over again. And thus far, God has not answered Would that be discouraging? You betcha, because I would imagine that in, in, in the beginning, his prayers probably were very regular, very intense, very lengthy, and this, that, and the other. As time has gone by, and God hasn't answered, he's begun to wonder if he's going to answer. I can't imagine for a minute that a lot of those months that Job hasn't spent those, that time in prayer. He also alludes to the idea that if, also, if he would just do this, that God once again would bless him. Five seventeen and following. Embrace your suffering. And if you do, God will once again bless you with a large family and a long life. And we know the rest of the book, right? I'm assuming everyone here has read Job, that when you get to the end of the book, that's exactly what happens. The good life Job had in the very beginning of the book, and then he lost everything. At the end of the book, his life is even better than it was before. And another thing I want to challenge us with this morning is this idea. And the idea and the truth is this, is that at our death, our suffering ends. We suffer in this life, but when we die from that moment on, we will never, ever suffer again, ever, for all of eternity, at all. There's a sense in which this part of our life, in this world as it is now, is our time of suffering. But, once we pass into death, even Job knew this. He longed for death. Why? Because it would end his suffering. One of the biggest 
problems I think most of us has is if we allow ourselves to get trapped in the moment. We don't set our mind and our, and our thoughts more on eternity. Our time scale is very much like the average time scale of people that live in the world. We are here for a short time. And as eternity passes, it's going to become shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. I don't think we'll ever forget it. But it will be more and more, less and less part of our picture. Now let me say this, sometimes these guys are right. Sometimes people do suffer because of wrong that they've done. Sometimes you suffer because of wrong that you've done. Sometimes people around you suffer because of wrong that they've done. But the problem comes when we always conclude that that's true. A lot of times it is. Sometimes it's not. So what are you going through right now? Some of you are suffering. But know this. That Christ is your guarantee. That it's worth it. And good will come out of it. You probably don't even have a clue what that's going to look like. But it's God's truth.